Hey, everybody, before we get started with this episode, we have one last live show to announce for 2018. We will be in New Orleans, Louisiana at the National World War II Museum on Tuesday, November 6th. Okay, we know that's election day, (laughs) but uh, we don't want coming to our show to keep you from the polls. We are both going to vote early before we leave for New Orleans, and Louisiana offers early voting as well, so we encourage you to do so. You can find out more about this show and get a link to buy tickets at mistinhistory.com slash tour. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, In the interest of a little Halloween fun this year, I thought it might be interesting to look at a couple of classic folklore figures, uh, and these are two entities with a number of similarities. So first, they're both women. Uh, They are also both usually described as crones or hags, and there is no clear origin point for either of them. As a lot of folklore, they have been around for a long time, and they have been hitting the written record uh, at various points in time, but their stories existed long before that. But they're also very different as well, because while both of these uh, figures are part of folkloric traditions, one, they come from different parts of the world, uh, and then the other is that one of them has actually a scientific explanation, and the other does not, but it has a really fantastic and colorful story that persists and has kind of spread far beyond her origins, and she's become uh, almost like a modern folk hero for a lot of cultures she was never part of to begin with. Uh, so we were talking about two spooky ladies. Uh, the first is Pisadeira, which hopefully I am not completely butchering that. It is Portuguese, not a language I am comfortable with. Uh, and the other is Baba Yaga, both of whom would make great last-minute costume ideas, if you're wondering. Also a note on Baba Yaga, I have heard some people pronounce it Baba Yaga, It seems to be a little bit regional in how those play out. Baba Yaga flows a little more naturally for me, so that is what I am going with. If you prefer the other, by all means, use it in your daily life. Please don't be angry at me for not. This is like Krampus and Friends Halloween edition. Yes, (laughs) which is kind of funny because Krampus seems more like a Halloween figure, but is part of our our, uh, winter holidays discussions. (laughs) Yep. So we're going to start with Pisadera. And there's a modern, sensationalized version of her that's really just terrifying. Starts with tales that warn against eating heavy meals before going to bed and advise you never to sleep on your back with results that are a lot more horrifying than if you just eat Welsh rarebit before going to bed. (laughs) I did think about how there's like a a rarebit through line in our podcast lately. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And this is because if you eat a big heavy meal before going to bed and then you sleep on your back, then possibly Pisadera is uh, this old hag with wild hair and claws and razor-sharp teeth, and she's going to come visit you and sit on you in the night. And if she does, you may very well not survive the visit. Uh, Pisadera will climb atop your chest or stomach and begin to torture you in your prone and deeply drowsy state. She may or may not laugh or giggle as she goes about her work, applying pressure to your chest or stomach, possibly even stomping on it, so that you lose your ability to breathe and slowly die. So maybe the most gruesome aspect of this attack is that she wants her victims to be incapacitated, but she also wants them to be awake. So you might try to fight or scream, but your body won't respond to what you're doing. So according to all these stories, when she attacks in the night, her victims either die 
or remember the events as a hazy nightmare. But while modern paranormal enthusiasts have kind of taken up the Pisadera legend and run with it, its roots are actually in Brazilian folklore. So, if you go to an online dictionary, the name Pisadera translates from Portuguese as stepping foot or treader. Folklorist Luis de Camara Cascudo has also examined and suggested some other linguistic roots for her name, including peso, which means heavy, and the root of the Portuguese word pesadelo, which means nightmare. Folklore-based descriptions of the Pisadera cast her in a variety of ways, and even sometimes as a male figure, although it is much more commonly a woman. In Ceada, state of Brazil, along the country's northeastern shore, this figure is always male and named Pisador, but in the female form, she is often described as an old, old woman, often spindly with long fingernails, although there are also regional variations in which she takes on a more portly physicality. In the São Francisco River area near Brazil's eastern coast, the name is spelled differently. It becomes Pesadera with an E after the P instead of an I after the P. This version of the terrible nightmare visitor also is associated with a specific article of clothing, which is a red cap. The cap is connected to her power, and according to this version of the legend, it offers a way to overcome her uh, if she attacks you in your sleep. If you manage to snatch off the cap, her power and strength will be diminished and she'll be so desperate to get the cap back that she'll grant a wish in order to get it back. So yeah, there's a a way out. There's an escape clause. Uh, The legend is that she lurks on rooftops waiting for people to go to sleep so then she can drop into their homes, often through chimneys, and then do her business of walking on their chests. And at that point, the folklore version is pretty much like the version that gets repeated on modern, sort of more sensationalized paranormal sites. She crushes the air out of her victim's lungs, and they experience a slow, agonizing death, or they are survived but left with a lingering sense of terror. There's a Portuguese folkloric predecessor to the Pisadera, which is a very similar behavior, but was a male friar figure called the Handhole Friar or Little Handhole Friar. As that name suggests, this legend was that he could enter a sleeping person's room through the keyhole and impede their ability to scream by placing a heavy hand on their chest. This entity also shares the red cap detail, and he only brings nightmares. When the person wakes up, he vanishes. Yeah, it's less of a fatal situation and more that he will just manifest really bad dreams into your your subconscious. Uh, Brazil's native peoples uh, have, across different tribes, their own different versions of Pisadeira in their cultural mythology, although they go by slightly different names. But all of the different monikers that go with this legend are associated with demons and nighttime, and the descriptions all follow this same general pattern uh, of a scraggly woman with wild hair and long fingernails who comes to sit on a sleeper's chest or stomach. It's really hard to trace the origin point of this myth and all the related folkloric figures. They've all been part of an oral tradition and passed down through generations, shifting and adapting in various communities and families. Yeah, just like if you have like a family story you tell, it often changes from generation to generation as people add their own uh, details and bits or maybe forget parts of it. And the same thing has happened with this. 
you may well have also heard of other entities that are very similar to the Pisadeira in other cultures outside of Brazil. And even within Brazil, as we mentioned, there are many versions. And that's because they all really link to this same fear of powerlessness when we sleep. But even more than that, they all seem to be expressions of a really common phenomenon, and that is sleep paralysis. I have an embarrassing story for you, Tracy. What is it? One, have you ever experienced sleep paralysis? No. Well, I mean, I not to the extent that people who talk about, like, their very frightening events have. <laughs> so I have on and off throughout my life since I was five. That's the first time I remember it happening. But I never told anybody about it and thought, like, this was my horrible secret that was, like, the portent of the day when I would just go mad. Oh, no. <laughs> like, I remember when I was five the first time I was um, – My dad, who is career Air Force, was away, and I was sleeping in my parents' bed with my mom, and I woke up, and I thought there was a ring of demons dancing around the foot of the bed, and I couldn't move, and they were basically threatening me and my mother, and it was very scary. Um, And this continued to iterate in various different versions throughout my life, and it was not, again, I just thought, like, well, I will absolutely lose my mind one day, and this is just the the early stages of it, and it was kind of my weird... thing that was fearful in my life. And it was not until I was, I think, 30 years old and in a car on the way to Disney World with a friend where she started describing an episode of sleep paralysis. And I was like, wait, that happens to other people? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm completely embarrassed that I did not know and did not, even though I am a person who loves to research things, think to look up this thing (laughs) and see if it was common. It's so common. It happens to so many people. Yeah, well, and I, like, I've had a couple of incidents in my lifetime where I, like, I had a really scary dream and could not move, but, like, not not to the extent that, like, people who wind up going and, and being diagnosed with any kind of sleep disorder have described. Yeah, and one of the things I know I do is I work continually even now, even though intellectually I know what's going on, and sometimes I'm conscious enough to be like, oh, This is happening. But I always have that moment in my sleep where I try so hard to make a noise that sometimes I make what is apparently a very frightening noise. I only know because my husband is like, whoa, that's terrifying. I'm going to have nightmares about that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this phenomenon that Holly has been experiencing was first described in writing by Hippocrates circa 400 BCE. But people were surely experiencing it way before that. It's been linked with sexuality and with the concept of demons who paralyze their victims and rape them at various points in history. So, like, the succubus and incubus myths are kind of tied in with it. Over time, those associations have diminished, though. And coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about what sleep paralysis actually is and sort of how it works as much as we understand it. But first, we're going to pause and have a quick sponsor break. So now, sleep paralysis is recognized as a relatively harmless but very unsettling sleep disorder. Uh, It can be linked to other things, but it in and of itself is harmless. The exact nature of how sleep paralysis happens is actually the subject of ongoing study. It seems that the visions of demons or evil presences, which are common in instances of sleep paralysis, are the result of hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. So hypnagogic hallucinations happen at the onset of sleep. Hypnopompic hallucinations happen as a person is waking up. 
And it is likely that this is because the the REM cycle of sleep is disturbed, and so that transition into or out of it is jarred. And there is a normal brief paralysis that does happen at those points of sleep. But in the case of sleep paralysis, the sleeper achieves a level of consciousness during those times, and that is why the brain puts together these very scary possibilities. There's probably a genetic predisposition to experiencing sleep paralysis, and all kinds of stressors can trigger these experiences. Anxiety, jet lag, post-traumatic stress disorder, even just routine life changes like changing jobs or moving to a new place can uh, contribute to all kinds of sleep disorders, including sleep paralysis. Sleep deprivation can also cause the shift into REM sleep to happen at an abnormal rate, which can lead to sleep paralysis. It's also really, really common. Between 25 and 50% of Americans are estimated to have sleep paralysis. Yeah, and this science is all, like I said, still being studied. There was one thing I looked at that said, well, for a long time we thought it was more common in women than men, but then we did this other sample group and that didn't pan out at all. So they're still figuring out like exactly what the sort of classic uh, person who might get sleep paralysis is because some people will have it just once or twice in their lives. Other people like me have it all the time. It's just a weird thing. We don't know. Uh, But sleep medicine as a field, which is really what I'm getting at, is still relatively young. Researchers have only been truly digging into the science of sleep cycles for less than 100 years. So for centuries, people have been trying to explain these weird, scary moments of feeling intensely that something, some creature, had crawled atop them as they slept and paralyzed them, forcing a waking nightmare upon them, which they had no power to combat or even scream about. While Hippocrates wrote a description of what really seems like sleep paralysis way back in the 5th century BCE, it wasn't until the 1600s that the disorder was written about medically as a diagnosis. That honor goes to Dutch physician and anatomist Eisbrand von Dimerbroek, who was treating a woman who had these recurring nightmares. It was not all that long after the word nightmare became more associated with the general umbrella of bad dreams because before the 1400s, the word more conveyed the idea that a witch or a demon had come to the sleeper in the night. Yeah, that's one of those things that gets cited as a problematic aspect in untangling uh, historical instances of sleep paralysis, because the word nightmare has shifted meanings, and in this sort of several hundred year period, it was getting used both ways. Um, So that makes it a little tricky. And even though we have had sleep science working on explaining sleep, sleep paralysis, The experience is so intense and it feels so very real to many people that they still seek other explanations. I mean, it really does sometimes feel like there is a person over you and it is hard to accept that your brain has just made this up. Um, And this is likely at the heart of a number of alien abduction stories. A lot of sleep researchers talk about this. Uh, Many people who experience sleep paralysis report feeling as though their bodies have been dragged or even carried through the air. Those are sensations that are also common in abduction stories. So there is some research going on to link exactly how those work together. So if you don't want to be visited by Pisadera this Halloween season or any time, Make sure you get plenty of sleep on a regular schedule and don't sleep on your back. That's not just a piece of folklore. Sleep scientists caution against sleeping on your back as well, as do people who have to sleep in the same room as snorers. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you can always take your chances, though, that you'll somehow manage to steal her cap if you happen to be visited by one of the ones that has one on. Yeah, and then you can get a wish. 
I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you, piece of data. I want that cap. And it's going to happen again, so I may as well think about it that way. <laughs> Just plan. Plan. Train your brain for some cap snatching. I'm going to do it. Maybe if I could train one of the cats to help me, then that would really help out. Here's an interesting thing I will, uh, as an aside, nobody really cares. Since having cats, the instances have gone down. And I wonder if my brain is trying to process something like that. And they're like, no, it's just a cat on you. I I don't know, but they've helped. Um, So we're going to switch gears now and talk about Baba Yaga. And if you saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, you have heard of Baba Yaga, or perhaps you recall that that was John Wick's nickname in the film of that same name because he was so intensely brutal, and that is a characteristic of Baba Yaga. And the Baba Yaga legend is, of course, played for laughs in the first film and uh, to invoke fear in the second. Those two ideas might seem at odds, but the tradition and lore around this figure are extremely fluid, so it's kind of not that weird. So much like a lot of the figures we've talked about in our Krampus and Friends holiday episodes that I referenced at the top of the show, Baba Yaga has been used to scare children into behaving well and to staying in bed at night. But her identity has a lot of facets that can't really be characterized in that way. Additionally, because of her inconsistent nature and this vast array of portrayals that she's had, Baba Yaga has influenced and inspired a lot of different types of art. Her origins are really murky, but she's born out of Slavic folklore. She's unrelated to any other belief system. She's not a demon or a spirit associated with any religion. She's not a witch exactly, although she certainly has some supernatural abilities and can command elements. It's pretty easy to draw a line to some pagan roots, but Baba Yaga's story is really its own story. She's just Baba Yaga. And there are aspects of the Baba Yaga character that do persist across most of her iterations. One is that she lives in a house that has legs. I love this so much. Uh, Those legs look like chicken legs, and the house can rise up and travel around or spin by walking on them. It's a lot like Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, And when a fence is mentioned around this home, it is made of human bones, and it sometimes has skulls on top of the posts. Baba Yaga is an old woman like Pizadera with a long hooked nose, but she has iron teeth, and she is also pretty consistently a cannibal. In some cases, though, Baba Yaga is noted for her wisdom and her knowledge, so much so that people are said to go looking for that house on chicken legs so they can ask her questions. It's always a dangerous proposition, though, because she may decide to eat you instead of answering your questions. She asks people questions to test them, and the penalty for the wrong answer is death. When she travels, she flies in a mortar or sometimes in a kettle made of iron, She carries a pestle both to steer and to use as a weapon, and she has a broom that she uses to erase all traces of her as she goes. And there are some murkier aspects of her lore, most of which have no explanation. So, for example, she can have daughters, though there is no father involved. We don't know how she procreates. Um, And these daughters are really almost like minions rather than like her beloved offspring. She can also transform into other shapes, such as a tornado-like whirlwind when she wants to kidnap children to eat. She can just spin up and snatch them that way. And she is also sort of a mother figure to the forest who is respected by animals. And she sometimes even takes on a sort of Mother Earth cast in various stories. And she's the guardian of the water of life. In some versions of her tale, she travels alongside death and eats the souls of the recently deceased. To further complicate things, Baba Yaga is sometimes described as one of three sisters, but all three sisters are also named Baba Yaga. 
This might be a way to reconcile these various different aspects. There's also a Baba Yaga mythology in which she's definitely a guiding entity, teaching manners by rewarding the people who behave properly and with respect. Yeah, even in the ones where she is characterized as pretty evil, there's a lot about, like, the rules of engagement with her. About You can only ask me a certain number of questions. If you know too many things in this life, uh, you become old. This has also led to uh, one sort of spinoff of her tale that whenever she answers someone's question, it ages her, so that's why she's so careful about testing them before she will answer questions. Knowledge is power, but apparently also ages you. <laughs> uh, and one of the sources that I came across while I was looking at Baba Yaga was a translation of assorted Russian folk tales, and Baba Yaga appears in many of them. So when we come back from a quick sponsor break, we are going to share two of those stories, because one shows her dangerous nature, and one shows her more helpful nature, although she is also scary in it. So in the first of the stories that we will share from this uh, Russian folktale book, Baba Yaga uh, features in it, but it starts with 41 brothers. They have their own weird backstory. They were hatched from eggs by a childless couple. One of the things I love about old folktales is how completely wonderfully weird they often are, and this one delivers. Uh, But they go out into the world to search for 41 sisters to marry. And in their travels, they come across the home of Baba Yaga, and they tie their horses outside and kind of expect some hospitality. And she is really angry that they presumed that they could just stop at her house, but she does give them food and drink, and then she brings forth 41 daughters for them to marry. One of the brothers gets a tip from his own mystical helper figure that's on the journey with them, He says that all the brothers should switch their clothes with their brides before going to bed. Then at midnight, Baba Yaga calls all the servants of her house to decapitate the uninvited guests. But the servants kill Baba Yaga's daughters because of this whole clothing change. And the 41 brothers put their brides' heads on stakes and then place those around Baba Yaga's home. She's so angry, she starts chasing the men with a fiery shield that burns everything that she turns it to. One of the brothers in this story had stolen Baba Yaga's handkerchief, which was magical, and used it to make a bridge over water and away from the spire, and then get rid of the bridge so that Baba Yaga couldn't pursue them. Yeah, and that's how the story ends. Like, yay, we tricked Baba Yaga and all her daughters are dead. Hooray, we beat the witch hag, Um, which is kind of weird. Again, folklore has some really great weirdness in it. But uh, the other story that we will talk about is really the most famous of all the Baba Yaga stories, and it's called Vasilisa the Fair. And it has some parallels to the Cinderella story, particularly that the fair maiden, Vasilisa, was forced to endure terrible treatment at the hands of her stepmother and stepsisters, who all envy her grace and beauty. And Vasilisa uh, had the help of a doll, however, which was given to her by her mother before she died. So Vasilisa fed her doll and told it all her troubles, and then in return, the doll did a lot of her chores for her. While Vasilisa's father was traveling, her stepmother sent her into the forest to the place where Baba Yaga's hut was, hoping that Vasilisa would be snatched up and devoured. But the doll helped guide Vasilisa's path, kept her from getting too close to Baba Yaga's hut. The story specifically mentioned the bone and skull fence. One night, when all the candles of the house had gone out, the evil stepsisters sent Vasilisa specifically to Baba Yaga to ask for light. 
She was scared, but her doll told her that if she carried her on the trip, if she took the doll, she would be safe. So on the way to Baba Yaga's hut, she was passed first by a white horse with a horseman all in white, and then a red horse and a horseman all in red, and then as she approached the hut, a black horse with a horseman clad entirely in black. Later in the story, she finds out that this is like the the different phases of the day which Baba Yaga has some control over. But this third horseman vanished as he approached the door. Vasilisa saw this because she was also coming upon the hut finally. So Vasilisa heard Baba Yaga traveling toward her hut from the woods, flying in her mortar. She was terrified, but told Baba Yaga her stepsisters had sent her to ask for fire. And surprisingly, Baba Yaga was receptive to this. The terms were that the girl had to stay and do work to get the fire. And if she failed in the tasks that she was given, she would be eaten. So for several days, she's given a series of tasks to do every day while Baba Yaga is out flying around doing her Baba Yaga things. Uh, And each day the task list lengthened, but Vasilisa was able to get everything done thanks to her doll. And this seemed completely impossible to Baba Yaga, and so she questioned Vasilisa about how she was managing to do all this, and Vasilisa told Baba Yaga that it was through her mother's blessing. This led to the old hag saying that Vasilisa had to leave as, quote, no one blessed may stay with me. And so she sent the girl on her way with a skull with burning eyes. This was her means of bringing fire back to her house. But when she got the skull home, its fire burned the stepmother and stepsisters. So the story goes on from there, although Baba Yaga is no longer in it. Vasilisa's fate continues to improve, though. She ends up married to the Tsar, and her father lives with her, and they're all happy. (laughs) Again, I love the weirdness of folk tales. (laughs) There's like a whole spinning of flax in there. There are, if you look at many uh, Baba Yaga stories, you start to see ingredients that we know from all of the various fairy tales we have seen from various cultures. There Mm -hmm. are just those consistent things that happen. There's even some great beanstalk stuff, and sometimes Baba Yaga does the fee-fi-fo-fum that we, at least that grew up in the United States in the second half of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. got in our our Jack and the Beanstalk version. Uh, And so uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is some art. So while there are many works of art based on both Pizadera and Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga also inspired the composer Modest Mussorgsky. When he wrote the 10-movement musical composition, Pictures at an Exhibition, he included one segment, that's the ninth of them, titled The Hut on Hen's Legs which is a musical personification of Baba Yaga hunting for a human snack. Pictures at an exhibition is actually structured around the idea that each movement of the piece is based on a piece of art by Russian artist and architect Victor Hartmann. So really, this is a double dose of art inspired by the Baba Yaga legend. That whole thing has its own story. Uh, Victor Hartmann died rather suddenly when I think he was 39. And so Mazorsky was uh, friends with him, and it was very troubling, and that was kind of what led to this, this piece being done. You have probably heard this piece, whether you know it or not, because it is probably the most famous of Mazorsky's pieces, and people will often play it uh, in concert, and it's lovely. The Hartmann painting of Baba Yaga's hut is not like any of the others I have ever seen. It's done in uh, as though the hut is in the style of an ornate Russian clock. So it is a lot more quaint and a lot less sinister than Baba Yaga's house is normally depicted. So if you find yourself in front of a hut with chicken legs late at night, tread carefully, be polite. You don't want to get eaten by Baba Yaga. I want to maybe make friends with Baba Yaga and hang out. Yeah, I... (laughs) 
Um, back in my college days, many, many years ago, um, like I read a number of sort of feminist analyses of various scary hag and crone and witch myths, mm-hmm. um, with Baba Yaga being one of them, um, and, and like reading it as more of like, this was a, a powerful woman figure that people were scared of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, even with Pisadera, right, it's interesting that the male version of her doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. He just brings them nightmares. But once that transitioned to became a woman figure, she was much more deadly. Right. It's just kind of an interesting thing to note. But yeah, Baba Yaga is is um, one of those ones that is very fascinating. And because, frankly, her name is fun to say, I think people really latch onto it and love it. But I would just like to show up at her house and be like, Hey friend, do you want to hang out and I'll do your hair? Like I don't know. <laughs> she just needs a manicure and to hang out and have somebody actually talk to her. Uh, <laughs> um, I am doing a little bit of a, a mailbag roundup of postcards because we've gotten a lot of them lately and I've been letting the pile stack up. And one of these is one of my favorite postcards we've ever gotten because of the message on it. Um, the first one is from our listener. I think it is a Cody. This is another victim of the mail service stamps. He has been traveling and he went to India and he wanted to send us a postcard from India but did not find any postcards. Apparently, India does not sell them. I I don't know that from personal experience, so I'm trusting you on this one, Cody. Uh, So he ended up going to Dubai later and sent us a postcard from there to tell us about his travels. Thank you so much. Um, Another one is from our listener. I think it is Dina or Dinah. Uh, She went to the Tenement Museum, which is amazing. And uh, she said, I finally made it after hearing about it on the podcast. Thanks for introducing so many great and interesting topics. She also sends us a suggestion. Uh, I'm so glad she went. That museum is amazing. Uh, Everybody who goes to New York should go there if they get a moment. Uh, We also got uh, one from Janine. And this is uh, about our AC episode. She said, hi, ladies. I'm so excited to finally have something interesting to contribute. I listened to the AC episode yesterday and immediately thought of this step well in a tiny ancient village in India. The people would climb down these steps to get water and then come back up again. There are 3,500 steps, and it was built a 1,000 years ago. It's incredible, and it looks like an Escher painting, except that it makes sense. Uh, She took her 80-year-old grandmother to view this this step well last fall, and she sent us one of her pictures from the trip, and it is very beautiful. She has a good eye for composition. Uh, Next one is uh, a Niagara Falls one, and this is another, it's a cute picture from Niagara Falls. It is from, I think... Our listener, Claren, maybe. Uh, If I get your name wrong, I'm very apologetic. Uh, She she visited, I think it's a she, uh, visited Niagara Falls and was completely amazed by it. Uh, And, of course, she says, I had to revisit the episode on Annie Edson Taylor when I uh, detoured up to Niagara. The falls are breathtaking, and I cannot imagine a 63-year-old woman going over them in a barrel. Uh, Yeah, me either but I'm terrified of such things. And this is uh, one of my favorite postcards we've ever gotten. It is from our listener, Paula. And you will hear why. It is one of my favorites. It's just a beautiful postcard. It's a picture of Paris uh, around 1900. So Paula writes, Holly and Tracy, I love the podcast. I wanted to send you a postcard to celebrate my first international trip. Yay! Uh, Your show made me want to go out and see the world and make my own history. That is amazing. This postcard delights me. I'm going to keep this one forever. Um, So thank you, Paula. Thank you, everyone who writes us postcards. I wish we could read them all. We can't. But uh, once in a while, I will continue to try to buzz through a few. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at houseofworks.com. We are also at Missed in History 
pretty much anywhere on social media. You can also go to mistinhistory.com to visit our website where all of the episodes that have ever happened exist in an archive form. And we invite you to come and hang out at mistinhistory.com and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 